When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is the Ridiculous Ashes podcast. I'm Dan Lipke. With me is Alex Burden. Hello. We're covering historical Ashes series to find out which nation is more ridiculous at cricket, whether it's England or Australia. And the series we're covering this time around is the 2009 Ashes. And Alex is here to tell you exactly how we do it in case you're tuning in for the first time. Yeah, tuning in for the first time in the fourth test. Yes. Uh, yeah, we, we, we go through each test match and we, we pick out our favourite and most ridiculous moment. Uh, uh, we argue the, argue the case for each of them and then we pick out our top three and give three to one point and whoever gets the most points whichever team gets the most points wins that test match Dan argues for Australia because he's a proud Australian and I argue for England um, at the minute the uh, so wait a minute are, are you not a proud Englishman uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah proud, proud Englishman <laughs> a proud Briton we'll continue on yeah so Australia are 1-0 up uh, they took the second test the other two entered in draws mm. the 3-2-1 mechanism allows for draws um, in the last match uh, I was on to a good start with uh, Graham Onion's uh, two wickets in two balls at the start of day two it's a, a very fine way to start the day um, but uh, Australia salvaged the test thanks to Michael Clark's interminable century <laughs> which dragged on for uh, it was the only reason they played the second half of the match really and uh, a point we gave a point to Graham Manu on debut as well uh, who stepped into the breach when Brad hadn't managed to break his finger yeah, uh, just immediately before the start of play. So the the fourth test was at Headingley, uh, and Dan's going to tell us how that panned out in uh, in actual cricket terms. Yes. Well, in actual cricket terms, they kind of echoed the previous test because Matt Pryor threw a bit of a scare into England. He had a mystery back spasm just um, prior to the toss, uh, but <laughs> but, yeah, but it loosened up and and he played so. Uh, 
Flintoff, however, he was injured uh, and Australia decided they no longer needed Nathan Horrocks in their team and instead Stuart Clark came in uh, to exploit the Headingley conditions with his uh, very targeted bowling. Uh, England won the toss and batted uh, and then they immediately collapsed to 6 for 72 at lunch and were bowled out for 102 shortly after lunch. Uh, Siddle finished with 5 for 21, Clark uh, 3 for 18, justifying his position. And in reply, Australia then put on 445, Michael Clark made 93, Marcus North 100. And 10, which meant that England trailed by 343 after five sessions of play. Uh, they then proceeded to collapse to 5 for 82 at Stumps on the second day, and despite some entertaining counter-attack from Broad and Swan on the third morning that saw them make 61 and 62 respectively, Johnson took five wickets, Hilfenhouse four, and Australia won by an innings and 80 runs to level the series 1-1 with one test to play. Yes, to, to level the actual Ashes yes. 1-1. Um, and we will we'll find out now what uh, the score will be in the Ridiculous Ashes. Uh, I'll, I'll nominate first, if that's okay, because yep. um, uh, mine, well, mine, mine starts, starts at the start, really. Um, if you listen to the, our first series, the 1997 Ashes, you'll know I'm a, I'm a big fan of an England batting collapse uh, <laughs> when it comes to my nominations. I've not really had one in a while, but this, this was a beauty. Um, so that's my first nomination because it's not just the batting collapse; it's England winning the toss, choosing to bat, and then completely collapsing in no time at all. Um, as you say, they were they were all out in barely more than a session. Yep. Um, innings featured four ducks and lasted thirty-three overs and five balls. So yeah, Flintoff missed this match, so 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 they'd have a bit of a tail. Yeah, uh, Stuart Broad was at seven, which at the time didn't seem quite so ludicrous because he was averaging almost thirty. This was the last series when he averaged over thirty, <laughs> uh, but he was nevertheless still Stuart Broad, and yes. uh, he came out at sixty-three for five. And I don't know if this like in a sixty-three for five situation, it's it's delightful to see Stuart Broad, but he's not sort of he doesn't inspire the thought that this is going to be salvaged necessarily. No, no, and and he did didn't do much uh, salvaging with the bat here. He uh, he, he made what uh, three runs? Did he? Three, I think yes. it was. Yeah, uh, but but a little bit of hindsight corner. I was a little bit tickled that he he, he did walk after a low catch was taken by Simon Cadditch, <laughs> which uh, will please all the Australian fans out there that he took took Cadditch's word for it. Off he trotted. He's laying the groundwork for future <laughs> for a for a punchline. That was the setup. Yep. Uh, playing the long game with that joke. Um, Flintoff's replacement in this match was Steve Harmison. It's not exactly like for like. Uh, he was batting at nine, which like Harmison was. He was a he was a tail ender. He was a he was a hitting tail ender. Really, uh, it doesn't seem too outlandish having him at nine. But he was he was very much not in form with the bat, even for him. Uh, he he scored a duck, uh, and it was his sixth in seven first class innings. Oh <laughs> which uh, yeah, I mean it's it's not. Kind of, I mean, if you were if you were sort of like picking the the batting order on recent form, and he was at nine, <laughs> that's not too inspiring. Um, so who was in after him? Uh, Gray Onions and then James Anderson. All right. Yeah. Poss- possibly the no, possibly the way around actually. I yeah. Gray Onions maybe maybe eleven because Anderson was still batting okay at this point. Mm-hmm. He, he was not sort of. Um, I think he sort of like later in his career just like accepted he was number eleven or just like took one for the team by being number eleven. There were a lot of jokes about like James Anderson being this sort of hapless, hopeless number eleven, but he's not. He's not a true eleven like in the sort of like Chris Martin standard. Yeah. yeah. No, he's not one of those um 
Hamson's duck, anyway, so Hamson's duck uh, actually brought him level with Mike Atherton on 20 as England's <laughs> all-time duckiest batsman. <laughs> but sadly, it was his final duck, uh, and both Broad and James Anderson have since sailed past him. So does that mean does that mean Hamson and Atherton are now level forever? Yes, <laughs> in the, in this respect at yes. least. Um, Broad, uh, as we're recording this, Broad's uh, up to 38 ducks, <laughs> uh, and uh, James Anderson's on 30. So England's top Top three duck makers, all time top three duck makers who are in this batting lineup. Um, that doesn't inspire confidence. Is, no, but it is worth pointing out that James Anson was playing his 41st test here. Hadn't actually made a single duck at this point. Wow. <laughs> so he's, he's really crammed them in since then. And uh, yeah, Broad's, Broad's back has kind of tailed off since then, rather as well. So. Yeah, quite the slide. Yes, I, I think uh, uh, just uh, some Australian bowling figures. Uh, Peter Siddle took five for 21, as I mentioned. The, the wickets he took were, were the number one batter and also then the eight, nine, ten, and 11. So he really mopped up the tail to Peter Siddle. Yeah, that's a great five for, isn't it? <laughs> that's a fantastic one. Uh, Mitchell Johnson, meanwhile, somehow managed to take one for 30 off seven overs, which is uh, <laughs> uh, very, very strange compared to everybody else's figures. Yeah, left and right territory. Yeah, and, and I think the other thing I, I particularly liked about this uh, collapse was that Graham Onions was the last man out. He was given out, caught off the forearm guard. Um, so in you know modern times, he'd probably you know try to send that up to DRS, but he, he probably wouldn't be able to because even in the modern era, he'd, he'd still be out because someone else would have surely burnt the reviews uh, by by the time it got to Onions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, broad. broad yes, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it, no matter what the timeline, onions was always going to be given out unfairly in this innings. Umpires don't give you much benefit of the doubt when it comes to things like if you're number eleven. Like no. if you're number five, they'd be sort of maybe in two minds. Number eleven, you say, "Ah, sod it, you're yep, go on. out." We've had enough arm of this. Guard, arm guards, bat enough. <laughs> Right. Well, speaking of uh, things that may not be uh, parts of the bat, uh, let's move on to my first nomination, if you like. Nice. And that's uh, Michael Clark's wrist. So uh, this this kind of follow this comes about. Uh, it's, uh, I'll, I'll do a little bit of preliminary uh, setup for this. So just before this bit that I'm about to officially nominate, we had Michael Holding uh, say about Clark after he was hit on the head by Harmison. He, Michael Holding came out with a theory that the problem with helmets is that they encourage batters to take their eye off the ball. Which seems like a, a, a uh, unusual piece of advice there from Michael Holding. Uh, it's like it's like the problem with seatbelts is that they encourage drivers to take their eye off the road. It's, it's I'm not, I'm not quite sure. It yeah, works you got to weigh up the two, haven't you? That uh, well, it does encourage batsmen to sometimes take their eye off the ball if it's a very very difficult one to yeah. deal with, and they may be fractionally more likely to get hit. But on the flip side, it, they do save lives. Yes. So you you weigh those two things against each other. And, yeah. Uh, Trying to juice if there's a net gain. Yes, you would think so. Yes, uh, but anyway, so shortly after that bouncer, I think uh, Harmison decided he uh, he quite liked the the idea of hitting Michael Clark in the head again. Uh, but this time, uh, the the bouncer managed to clip Michael Clark on the wrist as it went past him, and he was caught behind. Uh, but he was given not out by the umpire. Uh, but and the the replays the replays weren't entirely clear because it, it appeared as if the the ball had uh, had clipped his wristband, but the the issue became whether the wristband was part of the glove and uh, that led to a very lengthy and ridiculous cricket discussion which is one of my favourite things about cricket is how, how obsessed we get with these with these edge cases pun not intended in this 
edge case. And <laughs> edge cases such as where the bat starts and ends. Uh, it's I, I, I love this kind of shit. It's brilliant. Yeah. Well, obviously, in, in this instance, the glove is part of the bat. Yes. But then, like, the glove uh, wrist strap attached to it. I mean, how, how long can that be? Like, if you were doing sort of marginal gains, you would have a glove that just, you know, barely covered the fingers, I yes. guess. Yes. Yep. But uh, what if you have one that sort of almost becomes a bit of a gauntlet or a, or a, or a sleeve or an all-in-one suit, like, you know, like a child's uh, baby grow type thing with gloves on the end. In that situation, you get hit anywhere on your body and it's part of the glove. You yep. get hit anywhere and get caught out. Yep. So I guess that's why they don't make uh, like uh, cricket batting glove baby grows. That must be the only reason why they don't make them. I, I do like the idea, though, that if you're knighted for batting, you have to wear gauntlets uh, when you go out to bat. So Sir Alastair <laughs> Cook, you have to wear these enormous wieldy things as uh, as your your batting gloves. And and, and basically, the, uh, my, my understanding of this, and it's been a long time since I've paid it any close attention, is that if the wristband touches or is an extension, as you mentioned, then it's part of the glove and you can be caught off it. But if uh, if you've got a te- like the tiniest little gap between the end of your glove and the start of the wristband, it's a separate uh, entity and therefore you can't be caught off it. Which uh, Oh, is, is overlapping fabric, does that m- make it part? So just, I, I mean, that would be like a gap of skin, like... What what if you've got like a, a sort of yeah you say a wristband over it I was I was assuming that the wristband would actually have to be part of the glove you're saying even if it's just overlapping that becomes part of the glove I, th- I think that's that that's my understanding I'm, I may be completely wrong here but uh, that 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 is my understanding that if if it's if it's connected to the glove even if it's not you know attached there for all time it's uh, well, then it's... what if your sleeves touching the wristband yeah yeah that does seem odd doesn't it may... and your 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 tops then tucked into your trousers maybe. May Maybe my understanding is completely wrong. It's, 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 anyway, it's a, this is exactly the kind of conversation that... The point I, is, it yes. can be discussed at great length. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Clark was not out. Yes. Uh, my next nomination is Steve Harmison bouncing out Brad Haddon. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned earlier in this series how the highlights of pretty much every Australia inning seem to begin with Phil Hughes cutting four. And he, he wasn't playing in this match, but England's bowling remained consistent. And, and even um, Australia's batting, because the, the man who replaced Phil Hughes was Shane Watson, and I think he hit the first two balls for four. So Yeah, <laughs> I, I'd say probably 60% of the highlights of this innings, maybe more. Is No, yeah, probably more. It's just <laughs> Cuts and pulls. It's just yep. short balls and cuts and pulls. And the commentary sort of starts off, why are they bowling short? And then it sends into, I don't understand this, or <laughs> I just I just don't know what to say. You know, you could, you could, it's sort of like constricted. You just hear the, the commentators basically just running out of like ways to comment on this this hapless short bowling. Yeah, I feel I feel like England do this at least once a series. They have a session where they, they just bowl shorter than usual while seemingly everybody in commentary and at the ground is just saying pitch it up why are you doing this and, and they, I'm sure that I've seen this on multiple occasions this is not the first time oh this is more than a session oh yeah no this is a, a, a thing that they like they, they do like to do uh, but this is more than a session yes this yes again and again and again I think this was uh, I don't know how long the innings was but it was basically the entire innings yeah well the, the innings was essentially four sessions uh, well it's sort of two thirds of the way through this anyway <laughs> uh, in, and in light of how spectacularly unsuccessful short bowling had been England hit upon this plan to, <laughs> to get Brad Haddon out which was to bounce him out <laughs> and not only that it was a plan so obvious that 
they set the field for it, and Nasser Hussein and Mike Ellerton immediately started discussing the obviousness of the plan, like, as the field was set. And Nasser concluded by saying that Harmison could, if he wanted, say to Andrew Strauss, no, I don't want to bounce him out. And he finishes saying this at the exact moment Harmison bowls the ball that bounces out. <laughs> Just the, the sheer bloody-mindedness of, like, choosing this, like, angle of attack, and then it working. So how did it work? Uh, Mike Allerton, afterwards, speaking about afterwards, he reckons that Haddon was dismissed because he predicted the bouncer, premeditated a hook, and it wasn't quite short enough. <laughs> Even though it was like, still very definitely short, it was above waist height. But he thinks the only reason he got out was because he knew what was coming and was like preacting to it. Yeah, so so this is this is uh, like Harmison's uh, you know, version of a double bluff where he sets the field for the bouncer and then just bowls a marginally fuller bouncer than he <laughs> Otherwise, bold. Is, is that Atherton's theory? I think so. I think along those lines. I don't know if it was. Uh, I don't know if he was even crediting the bowling <laughs> side. I don't think he was. I think he was saying that they were doing something absolute. This this is how they got away with it. I think yeah. was Mike Atherton's explanation. Yeah. This is how they managed to uh, uh, dismiss Haddon with that, that terrible, terrible, obvious plan. Yes. Uh, kind of related to this, uh, we do get the uh, what as we watch this on the YouTube feed, we do get these automatically generated subtitles and they're mostly pretty good but they they do often struggle with uh, player names and cricket terminology and during you know one of this extended period where England were bouncing and just being pulled and hooked to the boundaries by well mostly Watson and uh, Ponting at first but then later Clark and North um, one of the uh, one of the subtitles automatically generated said onions will go for the occasional four because he does bowl a foolish length uh, which was uh, (laughs) ironic because bowling a foolish length was pretty much the only time England look like taking wickets apart from this one incident all right uh, my next nomination is is the very end of this uh this uh australian innings and that's uh stuart clark's batting so Stuart Clark was brought in uh, replacing Nathan Horrocks to exploit the Headingley conditions, and he kind of surprised everybody uh, when he exploited the Headingley conditions with the bat rather than the ball. <laughs> so Stuart Clark came in uh, and scored 32 runs off 22 balls, including three sixes in that innings, and they, they some of them were pretty big sixes. Yeah, that that fir- I think it's the first one he hits, which is a straight six, and it's it's a it's a really beautiful like textbook straight i mean like i i always value the straightness of a straight it's like mm. absolutely like straight over the stumps but he was straight over the stumps over the boundary over the stand wasn't he i yeah. think he was into a building site yeah no he, he, he's uh and he wasn't really renowned as a six hitter in his entire career he, he came to bat 26 times he hit six sixes in his entire career 50 percent of them were in this inning so um, <laughs> <laughs> he, he had a grand old time and uh, also having a grand old time was uh, there, there was a woman in the crowd and after, after I think his second six, uh, she started jumping up and down in delight and Shane Warne uh, tragically was on commentary. <laughs> and could Shane Warne resist making a comment? No, he could not. So he said, she's, she's having fun and then like a pregnant pause <laughs> and I'm having fun watching her or something like that. <laughs> like, just like this leery, sleazy old man comment. And Nasser uh, Hussain was on commentary with him and there's just like a sense, like an urgent Emergency, go steady, Shane, steady. <laughs> like admonishing him, it was like a real sort of like being told off by your dad tone of voice. Yeah. You could just feel like Shane just like 
like Shane's going to destroy himself here if I, don't, <laughs> if I don't get a grip on him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that that was all very entertaining. And um, yeah, after that, Stuart Clarke hit a third six and then instead of cutting to the blonde woman jumping up and down, they cut to uh, Ricky Ponting and uh, Shane Watson. <laughs> and they, they were up in the dressing room and they were they were cackling in delight. They, they thought this was all very hilarious. Uh, and Shane didn't have much to say about that, did he? He wasn't so, no. so delighted. But eventually, uh, that, that was pretty much the end of uh, Clarke's six hitting and he was... Uh, bowled by Stuart Broad, as I said, for 32 off 22 deliveries. Uh, but Broad, Broad got his own back, didn't he? He did. And, well, can we just segue straight yes, to my next so. nomination? Yep. <laughs> it's not thrown together, this. No. It's a bit of production. <laughs> um, yes, my next nomination is Stuart Broad and Graham Swan's uh, sodded batting partnership from the set- second inning. So, to set the scene, um, the, the, the first innings was pretty dreadful. The second innings was quite bottom heavy it was mm. it, it was basically a dreadful inning slightly salvage but a little bit of pride salvage uh, the top three scorers in the innings were graham swan with 62 he was batting at nine um stuart broad was 61 he was batting at eight uh because they'd been a night watchman mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, the openers got sort of 30 and then there's just a load of single figure scores in the middle yeah so as i say england were bowled out for 102 in the first innings then they were 120 for seven in the second off about 40 overs so so just kind of shit. Um, not as shit as the first innings, but shit. I think at one uh, point they were talking about how they were at risk of having their biggest ever loss on England's soil. I, I think that was a yeah. risk before these these two started uh, hitting out. <laughs> so Swan came out to bat to join Broad. Broad's first scoring stroke was an inside edge for four. Um, <laughs> so that was kind of like the, the, the tone of things. Um, Graham Swan came out to join him uh, and he was welcomed with David Lloyd saying, the end is nigh. So yep. that's how the partnership started. Uh, and at this point, uh, the two of them put on 108 and 79 balls, <laughs> <laughs> which was at the time the second fastest 100 plus stand in test history behind Nathan Astle and Chris Cairns, that time when Nathan Astle went nuts. Yeah. Uh, bit of a contrived stat because I don't think it's like the fastest to 100. I think it's just like uh, second fastest out of yeah, run uh, rate or yeah. innings over, yeah, yeah, run rate for innings over 100. Yeah. So so, you know, like people could get to 100 quicker but slow down. I don't know. It's very hard to find that kind of thing. I think Brendan McCullum and someone are sort of sandwiched in between them now. Yeah. There, there, there is something to be said for this idea of, you know, the the all hope is lost innings because that's exactly what Nathan Astle did that time when he went nuts too. Like they needed, I can't even remember what it was now, 300 oh, runs or something know. and he decided, all right, I'm just going to go berserk and he hit a double century. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to know what was going on in Nathan Astle's head in that innings because I don't, <laughs> I don't know if he thought all was lost. I think he, he yeah, was maybe. playing in a way that it, it just seemed like England thought they're going to chase down this target. Nathan Arsenal is going to hit 300 in 150 <laughs> balls here and we're going to lose this test match. You could see England thinking that. Um, Stuart Clark, who was, uh, well, he was, in the, he was in the side for keeping things tight. That was basically why he was picked. Uh, he conceded 74 off 11. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, he took a hit. Uh, at one point, Shane Warne was trying to sort of highlight how he was an accurate bowler and he said uh, and he said to the viewers after a graphic had been on uh we've we've shown you his groupage i don't know if that's a shane a shane term that, that sounds very much like a warnism to me yeah and, and i mean this this innings actually brought out some some of the best in terms of australia's comedy fielding as well because i i think australia just thought they were going to cruise to victory and then 
as this nonsense went on, Australia's uh, fielding just went very silly. At one point, uh, Broad kind of accidentally chipped a shot, uh, lofted kind of chip shot that was just going over Peter Siddle's head at mid-off. And instead of kind of taking a few steps back and kind of jumping up with both hands to catch it, he kind of tried to jump and twist and kind of twist his right arm across his entire body. So he's trying to take the catch, almost three quarters turned away from it with tossing his right arm up to the sky. It was very strange. Uh, very strange effort, that one. My, my take on that one, I think you and me differ on this. Oh, okay. I know you're quite amb- ambidextrous. <laughs> and I think it was a very simple left-hand dominant catch. <laughs> yes. But for someone like me, for whom the left hand is just sort of to even things out a bit, balance-wise... <laughs> uh, <laughs> Like you, you would be going for that with your right hand, and the only realistic way of doing that is to turn sideways, almost <laughs> backwards, and try and take it backhanded. So I'm pretty sure that's what Peter Siddle was trying to do. Yeah. Well, either way, he didn't succeed. Uh, and nor did Mitchell no. Johnson uh, at one point, who also was trying to catch a ball from uh, Stuart Broad that was just about uh, too high for him. He, he was running. And backwards. he's decidedly double-handed, as we've yes. previously discussed on yes. uh, another episode, playing tennis right-handed, I think, and bowling left-handed. Yeah. So, so Johnson had the pick of both arms as he was running backwards uh, or, or in fact I think he went with both he did uh, and uh, managed to drop it and let the ball roll over the rope for four and uh, in kind of a sign of how desperate it was getting uh, I, I did enjoy an appeal from Stuart Clark which uh, hit broad a couple of stumps outside leg stump and was also swinging further down <laughs> leg side but nevertheless he, uh, he gave it a really good shout for that one so it was getting very desperate and, and, and I, do, I do kind of like that the, the the actual catch that dismissed him was uh, was taken by Shane Watson, who was a boundary rider for some reason. He, he came around and slid down low and took it very well. But it's, it's very strange to see uh, Watto moving around in the field so with such agility. And, and I guess the final thing I want, I want to mention about this one was that the, the, ver- the very last ball of day two was edged to uh, Marcus North's slip. And it was pretty much a regulation catch. And if he'd taken that, it would have been six for 78. And there's a fair chance that uh, Paul Ponting might have been able to convince the umpires to give them an extra half hour to, to just finish off the whole thing. And, uh, you know, who, who knows whether uh, uh, Broad and Swan would have uh, been so successful late in the evening as they were the next day. But uh, I'm, I'm glad uh, that Marcus North dropped this catch because this was very entertaining, this, this partnership. Yeah, North, he was at pains to say that the ball dipped on him when he <laughs> dropped that catch. With the confidence of a man who's made some runs, yeah. I think. Uh, he, he was saying that. You watch the replays, you think, no, I did, Marcus. Yeah. <laughs> you just feel on. Yes. <clears throat> All right. Well, let's go to, to my final nomination. And my final nomination is uh, Ricky Ponting's Pantomime Villainy. And so uh, I, it did uh, strike me uh, that Ricky Ponting was booed onto the ground and also booed at the presentation uh, quite loudly. And it kind of reminded me that he, he was, at this stage, a massive pantomime villain. And to, yeah. be, to, to be honest, I, I don't even remember why he was such a figure of English annoyance. Um, I, I assume it's something to do with you know being irritated at the Pratt runout and the first test time-wasting in this series. But I, I'm not entirely sure what he actually did that was so villainous. So. Yeah, I mean, I can I can I can offer an England an England fan perspective mm. on this. Um, I think one of the main things for England fans is that he was he was very keen on having protracted discussions with the umpires. Ah yes yes. Uh, and it always came across as either whinging or an attempt to bully <laughs> them into giving decisions in Australia's favour. That was one of the, the main things. Was this also the era when he tried to convince uh, teams before the series that everyone should just take one another's words on low catches? Was that then or did that come later? <laughs> I don't know actually. I don't I don't know if that would have like fed into it I think the sort of visible on screen stuff right. is sort of like grumpy face uh, and the other thing that I thought was that 
by this point, he was pretty much last man standing from the era when Australia won every Ashes without fail. Yep. So it could be that he was kind of hoovering up latent antipathy <laughs> for Matthew Hayden and the like. Because, yep. you know, there were just fewer targets. There were, you know, there's new people to sort of be annoyed at, but been annoyed at Ricky Ponting for sort of <laughs> half a lifetime. So, yep. uh, yeah, yeah. it's just familiar. It's comfortable. It was easy to be. He was an easy man to boo. Yeah, I, 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 I am kind of generally interested in the whole pantomime villainy kind of thing. And and obviously, you know, I think you have to be a certain level of quality before you even even qualify. So, for example, yeah, Steve Smith is is a is a, another pantomime villain, um, and mostly that's because he scores a lot of runs against England. But you know, also because of the you know the sandpaper stuff. And and then I guess the other major major uh, pantomime villain in recent years is of course David Warner, who uh, who is a is a villain in on just about every level. He actually punched an England player at one point. <laughs> that's kind of top tier villainy yeah i think yeah there's quite a few things that fell into that early on and i think also once your card is marked once mm. you've sort of like set yourself as being the villain there's it's very difficult to sort of back out of it yes yeah i, I mean and it's obviously not just you know england fans painting australians as pantomime villains uh australians reciprocate i mean Stuart broad is probably the biggest pantomime villain in australia that, that you can imagine and again it's mostly i mean it's obviously because he didn't walk that one time like all australians always do but it's also <laughs> because uh but you know it's because he you know take, does these spells where he takes 8 for 15 or something and you know crushes australia in the ashes i mean that feeds into the sort of longevity of a, a player as mm. well which i think is always important like you build a relationship with, with a player and you with your own like your own players the players on your, the team you support they'll often like you'll sometimes very gradually build unexpected affection for, for a particular player i remember not feeling a great deal for paul collingwood when he started yeah. and he ended as one of my favorite players yeah um and i think like similarly or uh, conversely uh, opposition players like they might like needle you a bit early on and then the more you see them <laughs> and the more you say oh it's this guy again i think he adds up yeah yeah i mean K- kp is the, the other one that kind of stands out and and i i think that kind of brings you to my general theory that i i think you need a certain level of arrogance or perceived arrogance at least to 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 yeah. kind of qualify in the, in the villain role because because i was trying to work out why why, why alistair cook or andrew strauss were, ne- were never seen as villains uh from an australian perspective and i i you know that they were as successful as anybody else but like it's just like oh yeah they're, they're those batters who score run whatever if you if you went to an actual pantomime and the villain <laughs> came out and it was alistair cook you'd be like you're sorely disappointed you would would you <laughs> yeah <laughs> like the script writers kind of missed a trick there yes all right so that's my final nomination um, okay. Do we have any things that didn't quite make the cut? I, I've only got one really I want to mention, which is some textbook Night Watchman nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, just a classic example, really, that Mitchell Johnson dismissed Ian Bell and James Anson came out. Then he dismissed <laughs> Alistair Cook and Matt Pryor came out. Yeah. <laughs> just like that's the way it works with Night Watchmen, yeah. isn't it? Just, yeah, they. Just, I don't know. It's not a... nonsense within the space of just a few deliveries. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I've got a few. I, I, did, uh, I did like that. Uh, there was one, at one point, uh, was it Graham Swan fielding at deep mid wicket? Uh, oh, yeah. At, at one point, he comes into field uh, this, this shot that uh, Michael Clark has clipped off his pads. I, I am quite co- a little bit annoyed that I keep having to say Michael Clark and Stuart Clark when they're spelt differently yeah. and that should be able to be conveyed <laughs> over audio. Should be but, audible, shouldn't it? But yeah, so Swan came in to try and field this clip off Michael Clark and he just kind of fell over. He just picked up the ball and instead of throwing it in, just fell over. He didn't seem to slip over, he just <laughs> fell. It was very strange. 
Yeah, I liked. There's this like a, there's a really good slow motion from just behind him as he's doing it. You never know with these moments whether they're going to have like a good shot of it afterwards. But there's a particularly good one of this. Uh, and he he went to throw. Then he realised he was falling over and aborted his throw. <laughs> and then he decided to throw while falling over. He clearly just had second thoughts about it. Thought, well, this no, this is my best chance. And then he aborted a second time. And this is quite a lot to get through in the course of one falling over. Yeah. I thought it was very good. But yeah, I, I don't know if he just like a bit of a toe in the ground because he looks for all the world perfectly balanced yeah. and then suddenly just starts keeling over just as the just as the arms come in over yeah so that, that was very entertaining uh i also enjoyed uh brad haddon he took a he took a very good catch off uh, uh i think it was matt Pryor edged one from ben hilfenhaus and uh haddon dove in front of first slip and took it very low down in one hand and i i only really like this because it's a callback to uh something you pointed out from the first test where mike atherton was saying that uh brad haddon had been working on moving to his right and all, all that hard work had paid off because he uh he managed to dive to his right and take that take a very good catch and then the whole thing was ruined by, because warren started saying rockin rod stewart for some reason <laughs> yeah. yeah just i mean shame was like commentaries cropped up two or three times in this episode it's just a fairly classic example where when you're watching live these things wash over you a bit but he's he's just like a volcano of shit yeah he like these sayings that are not sayings that <laughs> why wh- why rocking Rod Stewart what's what's rocking about it and why Rod Stewart I, I, I did go back I, I, I had vague memories of this era and I went back through Twitter feeds and I, I did find some references this was this was something he'd been doing for a while at this stage um, he, he I, th- I think he thought that Brad Haddon's haircut made him look like Rod Stewart and right and I think okay. Rod Stewart plays rock and roll and therefore Brad Haddon <laughs> is rock and rock and Rod St- I, I don't really know Rockin but that, that's Rod. my theory right that well that's a good explanation to ever likely to yeah I, I don't want to delve too much further it only falls mind. down it, the only part where that falls down is the fact that um, Brad Haddon looks absolutely <laughs> yes. nothing like Rod Stewart that's the only just the fact that everything's hung off the fact that he looks like Rod Stewart and he absolutely doesn't that's the only apart, that's the only apart from in that, that a shape. really good nickname uh, <laughs> <laughs> alright uh, do you have any any other nominations non-nominations no, I think I think that's I thought put all my heavy hitters in. Oh, the, I, I I did have one more. I I did I did, uh, did enjoy that we had uh, Billy Bowden, your your near namesake, uh, out here. Oh uh, yeah, umpiring and doing all his usual nonsense, which uh, is is too commonplace really to ever be nominated, and it can't really be ascribed to a team. Do you have any thoughts of Billy Bowden? Yeah. I do have thoughts about Billy Budd and that, that chiefly, like, I think every, a lot of cricket fans always been an, annoyed. <laughs> like, I think it was a little bit sort of like amused at his idiosyncrasies at first, but I think there was also probably a greater number who was annoyed by his, his going, his shenanigans. Uh, but my issue with Billy Bowden was always the fact that he pronounced his surname wrong. <laughs> um, so, like, I, I kind of had this twice in my life. When I started high school, um, my headmaster was a Bowden so everybody <laughs> at high school for the whole of high school got my name wrong yep. uh, and then once I began working in cricket <laughs> everybody in the whole of cricket gets my name wrong because of Billy friggin Bowden yeah well I, I must admit but, but before every episode begins I have to uh, I, I, I know it's not the same so I always say Billy Bowden Alex Bowden and then, then I can then I can start yep. yeah a little aid memoir uh, I mean I suppose this, uh, I can d- distinguish myself from him and differentiate myself from him yeah uh, Maybe not, uh, I think. 
Yeah, I'm okay with that. <laughs> All right. So how, how are we going to go vote-wise for here? I'm feeling pretty confident, yeah. Dan, I'll be honest. I, 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 think the, the, got, the, I think I've got a few good ones. Yeah, I think the broad swan partnership, that's, that's just top-tier nonsense. That's just two guys, two tail-enders scoring, you know, as you, as you said, the second fastest century partnership <laughs> ever. Uh, very, yeah, very, very I, I think the, the context of it is always key as well. I mean, it's not just the fact that they're tail-enders. It's the fact that England have been bowled out for 100 <laughs> And we're en route to being rolled out for not much more than 100. Yep. And then at that point, to just suddenly kick off. And then I know that that's partly how they came to be playing so many shots. Mm. But they were successful. They were successful for long enough to put on 100 runs, <laughs> which is a, a, you know, that's a fair whack of uh, scoring. Yep. So I would, yeah, I think that's probably the best one. Yeah, I, I think that's a clear cut three. I, I, don't, I don't have anything to even get close to that one. So that's our, that's our three pointer. So let's battle it out for the, for the lower tier. I, I I must admit I, I think uh, I mean the England collapse is also pretty. Good. I mean it's it's tried and true. It's, it's not just a collapse; it's winning yes, the toss and collapsing. And yeah. collapsing. It's saying these look like good batting conditions. <laughs> well, we'll 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 take the new ball just after lunch. <laughs> we'll try and defend this total. Yeah, uh, is that kind of a collapse? Yes, yeah. So that, I I mean that the only thing that I've got anywhere near that range I think is Stuart Clark's. Uh, batting exploits and I mean Stuart Clark is one tail end batter he scored half as many as either Broad or Swan did so I, I'm well off yeah. the pace here he managed to well he's got <coughs> over half his run uh, in three shots yes yeah <laughs> Admittedly, half of his career six as well, which is pretty ridiculous. Yes, I, I don't know if I can sort of convey it quite strongly enough, but I actually think Steve Harmison bouncing ahead <laughs> him was a particularly good one as well. Because if you if you're watching the match or if you're watching the highlight, all you have heard for the whole of Australia's innings, is, all you have seen is cut shots and pull shots disappearing to the fence, yep. and then for them to hit upon this sort of uh, Baldrick-like plan <laughs> of uh, yeah, well, let's bounce out. Haddon yeah. and then he, it's so obvious and he lumbers in and it's short and Haddon makes that such an absolute hash of it it was a and terrible it's not shot like he, just sort of, he doesn't like glove it to slip or something he probably just like pops it straight in the air mm. uh, to legally I think yep. it is or... yeah yeah I mean uh, yeah it's, it's all good stuff and uh, as I say I, I don't know I don't have much to defend myself with here so um uh, is this a clean sweep? Is this three, two, one to England? I uh, yeah. I mean, I don't think. I think Ponting's villainy is a bit too sort of abstract yeah. and uh, long-winded. Michael Clark's wrist. <laughs> well, Michael uh. Clark's wrist was. Uh, I was pretty desperate in this one. Australia didn't do an awful lot ridiculous, except for the uh, pr- pretty much my strongest effort would have been the ridiculous fielding, but that was all inspired by the ridiculous batting of. Uh, Broad and Swan, so it's I, I kind of yeah. feel it ties into that. So I, I'm the, the Australians are boosting your nomination. Yeah, you could take sort of a bit of uh, shreds of uh, success off the yeah. back of that, but yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think maybe I think maybe it is a three-two-one, three-two-one clean sweep, an innings victory. Really, <laughs> it is. It's, it's, it is the equivalent <laughs> of an innings victory. It's an absolute thrashing. We're going into the final test of the ridiculous ashes, the fifth and final test, uh, leveled one-one, and uh, we will be covering that next week. So uh, thank you for listening. You can check out Alex's website. That's kingcricket.co.uk. You can check out mine. That's at liebcricket.com. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at ridiculous ashes, at the king's tweets, and at liebcricket. And we will be back in a week with our coverage of the fifth test of the 2009 Ridiculous Ashes. Dilly.
Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.